Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Cesar Valdelomar talks to Dr. Mark Jordan about theological writing and teaching. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Cesar C.J. Valdelomar. I'm a third-year doctoral student in theology and education at Boston College, currently working on my comprehensive exams. I'm also a frequent contributor to Open Plaza. Today, and what an honor and treat it is, I'm here with Professor Mark Jordan, whom I consider a dear friend and mentor. Mark is Niebuhr Research Professor at Harvard's Divinity School and a member of the Theological Education Between the Times project. His latest book, Transforming Fire, Imagining Christian Teaching, is part of that series. Thank you, Mark, for your time today, and also thank you for your friendship and mentoring throughout these years, uh, 13 and counting now. Um, can't believe it's been that long, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it doesn't seem like it, you know, and I just want to thank you, and it is an honor and a privilege to be here with you today. Yeah, for me, too. So, an indecent theologian is a theologian who has learned to survive with several passports, writes Marcella Altus-Reed. I feel like you, Mark, like we, have learned to both survive and thrive with many passports. I now invite those watching this to journey with us as we embark on a conversation on the promises and perils of theological education and teaching. To restate or re-ask a question you raised during your seminars and during a recent paper, quote, what hope might Christian theology offer to current debates about sex, gender, as perhaps the most police sites that is not offered by others? Other questions we might discuss throughout, though I make no promises. What of care of the self? What of the future of theological imagination and creativity? What shelters should house theology, if only briefly? I want to model a pedagogy of conversation. Picture Mark and I walking on a road with no end in sight. We pass the time by having a conversation or conversations that might lead to dead ends, to new conversations, or to silence. Weary travelers also need time to rest. So conversation might very well induce slumber, both as a form of rest, of recovery, and as a form of pensive contemplation. As we accompany each other on this imaginary road, this journey of the mind and soul, eventually, though, our paths will diverge, bringing our immediate conversations to an end. But make no mistake, the going of our own ways is not the conclusion of our conversations. For conversations continue, though in infinitely reconstituted forms with different bodies, and even with selves who never were, with ghosts even, specters who loom large as we fail miserably to give accounts of ourselves because of the limits of language and the failure of imagination. It is our hope, my hope, that this conversation engenders other conversations, not least unexpected ones, or even silence. So with that, let's begin. In the year of magical thinking, the late Joan Didion writes, quote, the way I write is who I am or have become. 
Yet this is a case in which I wish I had, instead of words and their rhythms, a cutting room equipped with an avid, a digital editing system on which I could touch a key and collapse the sequence of all time, show you simultaneously all the frames of memory that come to me now, let you pick the marginally different expressions, the variant readings of the same lines. This is a case in which I need where it is, I think or believe to be penetrable, if only for myself." End quote. Mark, I admire you as an author, as a writer, and as someone who takes writing seriously. What does writing mean to you? Is it even possible to find or to unravel oneself through writing? That's the question. Um, and, and with Joan Didion very much in mind, I lament her passing. I regard her as one of the greatest writers of English prose alive in my lifetime. Uh, I wanna pick up also as a kind of caution or qualifier for everything I'm gonna say in favor of writing. I wanna pick, pick up that, that sense of a moment in which you strain beyond words for something else. There have been, um, especially in recent years, long months when I hoped for a, a kind of writing that would be like lifting a page up to capture the, the passing light of sunset or the motion of light in clouds, uh, as if we could turn our writing into pages of watercolor that would capture the transient moment. So I, I really wanna honor that and, and mark very clearly our yearnings for expression beyond writing. But, but that said, I'm one of those people, um, perhaps like Joan Didion, though I would compare myself to her in no other way, who feels uh, compelled to write. Uh, for protest and exhortation, for pleasure and politics, but especially as your question suggests for self-discernment, because I don't know what I think or what I feel or what I hope until I can write some way into it. And let me say that this is completely apart from the economies of uh, publishing or, or academic communication. Um, the, my longest, my most sustained writing, hundreds of thousands of words, is in a journal which I started keeping when I was 16, and that has taken all kinds of forms and that I never expect to see published. In fact, I have a, a very strong feeling that it must be burned the instant that I die, not because of scandal, but because of the sense of of it being a space of private writing for private investigation and discernment. Um, so yes, I would put a, I would put self understanding or discernment or understanding God as the chief motive for the writing. Yeah, and I that's beautiful. That's a, also uh, in part to my students when it comes to writing. I you know I tell them not everything has to be shared. Um, you know there are things that are meant private discern our lives, you know, and I believe uh, Joan Didion also um, Elder says something along the lines of I write to understand who I am, you know, or what I'm trying to say, right. Um, and I think that that's um, true of me too. And I have an excerpt here from an essay uh, that I wrote actually, uh, during our conversations last semester, um, regarding Foucault, 
So I wrote, quote, selves are always in search of selves that never were by running away from selves currently are. So it is in those moments between running and not running, between removing the bricks and laying them, the self sees and feels itself as clearly as it can. Like fugitive sunlight peeking through blinds in the morning as one awakens, the self through occasional fractions of something much too powerful for eyes, end quote. And it reminded me of what you were saying there with, um, you know, writing um, and, and writing in those apertures, those breaks, which leads to the next question. In your latest book, Transforming Fire, you write, quote, we also need experiments in writing. The page remains a powerful space for pedagogical experiments. An argument for more attentive theological teaching by scenes is also an argument for different genres of writing. If the future of theological education in the United States looks to be poor and smaller than what it has been, we might relearn from poor and small communities the power of the word, end quote. Could you say more about this? What experiments do you have in mind? Which genres? Well, journals, obviously. I, I, uh, I say that as a, a joke, but also uh, uh, as a recommendation. I don't think that people who write theology, um, I think that they should learn the limits and difficulties of writing in part by trying to write their own lives um, in, in journals. Uh, because if, if you can't write even a little bit honestly about yourself, it's very unlikely that you'll be able to write about God. It's much harder to write about God. Uh, so I, I, I do recommend that. But look, there's this old idea in uh, Western European theology that theology has to use all the voices, all the genres, all the vocabularies. <clears throat> it does that partly because it inherits scripture and scripture is on the medieval reading, a great, a great choir of voices of different voices singing. And, and so theology imitates that range even in trying to interpret scripture. But theology also begins as this effort to hear multiple voices and to hear them making sense rather than just cacophony, right? To hear the voices of an inherited tradition as somehow harmonious, somehow coherent, uh, or at least dialectically engaged. And so there's this repeated notion that theology, the theologian also has to learn to write in all the possible modes of human speech. Uh, I believe that. I mean, I, I believe that what makes, what part of what distinguishes theological writing is its ability to speak in multiple voices. Uh, and, and that has only gotten more urgent uh, with our growing appreciation of the plurality of cultures that, that are engaged in Christian theology. Um, I, I know you also mentioned, um, particularly uh, during your address to the Religious Education Association, um, in your paper, you mentioned that it's all rewriting, right? Recrafting. So not necessarily coming up with something new, Right, um, which of course, uh, you know, uh, my favorite passage being Ecclesiastes from Scripture. Right, nothing new under the sun. Um, so it's not about necessarily with something new, but reconstituting forms or rewriting them, um, and in that way, moving the language forward in some ways. Um, would you agree that that's one of the tasks of theology. 
Oh, very much so. I, I think, um, in the humanities at least, I think the, the criterion of originality is highly overrated. In fact, it's just, it's just wrong, it's just misleading. But at an even more basic level, most of what we say is uh, repetition. Language is all about repetition. And very occasionally, some one of us can come up with a phrasing that's absolutely new um, or invent a word or something like that for good or for ill. Um, a lot of theological words have done a lot of damage. Um, yes, but most of what we do in writing or in speaking is collage of existing language. The question is how artfully we do the collage. Absolutely. And I think that's where theological imagination obviously comes into the picture and being able to see beyond right uh, current, you know, arrangements, uh, so to speak, of our references and doctrines even. Um, how can theological writing and teaching contribute to what you call a practice of resistance to the conceptions of education as the efficient transmission of testable information? Yeah. Um... That, that was a bit, uh, that was a sharp sentence, <laughs> but uh, it also puts a lot of my convictions into it. Um, I think there's a um, profound difference between information and learning, um, at least the kind of learning we do in theology, uh, just as I think there's a profound difference between insight and slogan. Uh, or between what is called in the Platonic dialogues, knowledge and opinion. Um, so testable knowledge, oof, that sounds to me uh, like a contradiction in terms. Um, and testable information, well, there is information in theology, but it's not the main thing. It's instrumental to other sorts of things. Um, so to put that in the larger frame, which is what I'm trying to do in the sentence, I think that that theology is a, is a reservoir or cistern, as I sometimes say, of older forms of knowledge. And rather than be embarrassed about the fact that we uh, possess and pass on older forms of knowledge, we ought to claim it with pride because the existence of that uh, cistern of water, that deep well of water is increasingly precious in a time that is parched by distracting information. Uh, so I, I think uh, if, you, if you teach texts uh, that are written out of the deeper tradition or contemporary texts that are also after the same ends, they naturally resist the reduction of learning to the transfer of information. So in one way I can say the resistance comes just by teaching the books you assign. Uh, but in another way, I think you can also, um, and I think I know you do this in your own teaching, um, I think you can also take any text and put a frame around it that allows people to look at it in a way that raises questions about this kind of uh, production line view of the transfer of information. Absolutely. And, and what comes to mind is Marcella Altus Reed, where she says that odd bedfellows, you know, are. Uh, what we need in terms of method and methodology uh, when studying these texts and reading them and writing about them. And, and of course, by odd bedfellows, she supposes somebody like the Marquis de Sade uh, juxtaposed with Gustavo Gutierrez, right? 
It's like, what can possibly, what can they possibly have in common? And yet to interrogate that and, and see the connections, but also see the disjunctures and this can again, right, uh, pave the way for fragmenting these texts and then reconstituting them from the shards. Uh, can you say more about fragments? You know, I know that uh, that word is back in vogue. Uh, you know, it's been published, written about uh, ad nauseum um, over the past few years. Uh, but what do you see as the power of fragmentation? What to you is the power of fragmentation? Well, first of all, I think we live it. So the power of fragmentation is honesty. Yes. It's, it's the culture we're in. And we've been in it for about 170 years, if we're talking about um, the kind of central institutions of Euro-American culture, um, the great masterpieces of literary modernism, which are now 100 years old, uh, are all of them essays in fragmentation and the interpretation of fragments. Um, but but I, I would go further, I think, um, the gospel consists of fragments. And I'm, I'm not speaking as a biblical scholar there. I'm speaking as a naive reader of the text. It's a disjointed narrative filled with aphoristic sayings by a very enigmatic teacher. That's a, a work of fragmentation. And I think that reminds us that teaching in fragments is the condition of theology because of our ignorance and the limits of our language. We're incapable of giving a complete, coherent, exhaustive account of divinity, even of what divinity is doing in our individual lives. And so one way to keep reminding ourselves of that is to write in fragments. Because to write in clean, connected, systematic texts, numbered propositions, I'm thinking of the great manuals of scholastic neo-Thomism, to write that way encourages the illusion that you've got a system. And the one thing you can be sure of in theology is you don't have a system. Or if you have a system, it's not theology. Absolutely. And I remember here Nietzsche who says, you know, I despise all systemizers, right? Um, and I think you're, I mean, uh, that's the way I do my theology as well. And, you know, I've experienced the shift in the way I, I do my theology over the past 15 years or so um, from the more systematic approach to this fragmenting approach. And, you know, students admittedly are frustrated with, you know, at the end of the semester, many of them are questioning and, and asking, what are your thoughts? What were your thoughts? What did you really believe? And I tell them it's, it's kind of irrelevant right now. You know, it's, it's, I want you to explore what you believe given the information that we've presented, given the text that we've read and engaged and given your own questions. Um, and so it's, it's an approach I bring to the class which causes confusion. And I think there's a natural desire, right? For people to have cohesion, coherence in their lives, you know? And so that's, that's my struggle with fragments. So even though it's something that I take seriously, something that I practice pedagogically, I do run into lots of resistance from systemizers and from people who desire, you know, strong sense of coherence, whether it's their faith, their personal life, their sexual lives, et cetera. Um, so any tips for those of us working with fragments who want to continue working within fragments and, you know, will continue to meet this resistance in the academy and outside of the academy? Your question's a very powerful one. I think it's one of the central in fact, I think Plato would say it's the central um, 
task of teaching, uh, at least teaching something serious, which is to balance desire and frustration in your students and in yourself, um, because we're all always students. Um, you have to you have to lure the desire, the desire for the truth, the desire for the beautiful, the desire for God, because that's the engine of learning. That's what's driving people uh, to seek out uh, what you're trying to help them find. At the same time, what you have to keep doing is, is setting aside the first things they'll grab for as satisfying the desire, right? Um, and so it, someone says, I, 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 want, I want to find out about God, right? And so give it to me, give me the answer, give me the solution, preferably on a three by five index card, right? In numbered steps. And it's, it's a perfectly understandable desire, right? We all suffer it at some moment or the other, just make it simple, just tell me what I have to believe. But there's two problems with that. First of all, in general, you can't give someone else insight. If you attempt to give them insight, you end up giving them opinion, that is a slogan, yes. but not insight. And the second thing is, especially with respect to theology, you cannot give someone the entire thing because you don't have it, because no human being has it, because the church doesn't have it because the scriptures don't have it. These are all instruments or pathways of approaching God. So I, I agree with you. And I, I sometimes, well, I mean, teaching is all about failure too, right? I frequently mismanage the balance of, of desire and frustration. Um, but I would also say, and I hope I'm right about this because I've I've bet my career on this. But I would also say that if you're gonna make a mistake, it's better to make a mistake in the direction of frustration than of certainty. Because false certainty is very dangerous. Absolutely, it opens the door for fascisms of all kinds, right? Um, and speaking of teaching, which is the topic, I guess now we've we've shifted fighting yeah. <laughs> to teaching, um, but you know they're interchangeable in many ways. So also in your book, you note that quote, however we resolve the institutional future of theological education, we cannot go forward without asking hard questions about teaching. End quote. And I cannot agree more. I mean, as a teacher at heart, coming from a family of teachers. Um, you know, this, this ever since I can remember, right? My earliest memories are of teaching. You know, I would gather my, my poor aunt and mother and you know, a couple of teddy bears. And, you know, as a four-year-old, a disciplinarian though, as a teacher, you know, as a four-year-old, because I was mimicking what I learned in preschool and, you know, um, but a teacher nonetheless. <laughs> so it's always been there, that desire. You speak of allurement and desire, stating that teaching and learning begin best in desire. Can you talk a bit about your philosophy of education, about your pedagogical style? Hmm. I'll, I'll take the second way you've, you phrased that, because um, I always stumble a little bit over the phrase philosophy of education, uh, because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because as you know, for me, um, all serious philosophy is education. It's essentially education. 
And education is, is not a set of propositions, but an endless practice. Um, I think that's one of the things that makes education or teaching like writing, right? They're both endless practices. They do not have goalposts or finish lines. Um, you can never be done with them. They're never done with you. Um, so the practice of teaching, I think, is, I think it's very hard to write down. It's easier to give examples, which is one thing I, I try to do in the book that you held up. Um, but it's but the best way to to see teaching is to watch it, right? The best way to get help with teaching is to watch someone teach and and watch yourself teach. And this is where I think the problem of um, form and content, which is a central problem in in writing, is also um, a problem in teaching or a possibility in teaching. So I don't think it's possible to separate the content of a teaching from the practice of the teaching that transmits it. So if someone comes to me and says, I have a revolutionary new idea um, that will completely change human lives. I say, well, great. But before you tell me about the idea, could you tell me about how you're going to teach it? Right? What, what pedagogy are, are you going to use? And what kind of institution are, are you going to put it in or not put it in? Maybe you're going to do it uh, in cafes and marketplaces, the way some famous teachers have taught. Or maybe you're going to do it along the road to Jerusalem, which is the way another famous teacher taught. And here I would say, you know, CJ, if I had to, if I had to point to a body of writing that would count for me as a rich resource for thinking philosophically about education. Well, I mean, you could say there's Plato's Republic and there's Rousseau's Emile and there's Dewey, but actually both biographically for me and in terms of my present reading, I would point to the, the a tradition of pedagogical critique in Latin America. I mean, right, which is very deep, which has been backed up with a substantial body of practice and which has been going on for a century and a half at least, right? So, right, so Marcella and Ivan Illich and Freire and Fanon, yes, but go back beyond them to Gabriela Mistral and Vasconcelos and to these generations of the university reform movement, which was led by students. And I think in those texts, what you find is a, a deeply ethical uh, engagement with teaching at all levels, from basic teaching, you know, up, up through the most advanced. And by basic teaching, I mean what Freire was doing when he was teaching people how to read and write, up to the most advanced university. And I at least don't forget, this is the biographical portion, that I learned, I learned to read in uh, an escuela rural federal in Mexico <laughs> in a small fishing village. And the, one of the few documents I saved from that portion of my life is the, is the certificate of having passed the literacy examination <laughs> in Spanish, of course. Um, and, and I'm very proud of that document, but I'm even more proud of the educational movement 
that continues in countries like Mexico, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, that continues to take education as this seamless, urgent project that goes from the very beginnings all the way up. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And education, even, you know, I think of Augusto Boal, right? And, and the theater of the oppressed, you know, the aesthetics of the oppressed, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's teaching in, in various forms, as you're hinting here. And, and um, you know, I cannot agree more that the content and the form are in some ways inseparable. And sometimes the form might even be more important than the content, but, uh, the form of teaching. That and also my teaching. Uh, there's a few things you mentioned here that caught my attention. Uh, number one is the endless practice of education and teaching, uh, which brings to mind, of course, um, the endless practice of freedom, right? It's ongoing, <laughs> uh, constant vigilance uh, instead of a one time liberation event that promises, you know, uh, utopian salvation for all. Um, so I think that that ties in, right, with the ongoing practice of education. Um, watching someone teach. I remember you uh, teaching. I remember the first uh, seminar, actually it was the first course, first lecture at, at Harvard Divinity School. And mind you, I'm coming from a small liberal arts college in Miami that nobody has heard about. Um, and now it's a Harvard and your first lecture, I could not, I mean, I remember it so clearly. You set the lights, you set the tone, you know, uh, gestures. And this inspired me right, to take equal care with my own delivery, my own form, uh, noting that, again, uh, saying things in new ways is practically impossible. So I think the best we can do to be somewhat fresh is to mind our own form, right, and learning it through others. And so, you know, I'm uh, just remember that anecdote, and, and, you know, I'm very thankful <laughs> Uh, for that experience. And then, of course, the seminars we had uh, where it was conversational has also inspired me to, to lead seminars in that way. So I cannot agree more that we learn best, not by books that tell us how to teach, right? But as you say, books that teach and also individuals who teach and nature, you know, um, teaches as well. So I appreciate that. Thank you. What, Thank advice you. you. what advice would you impart to those beginning to teach? I mentioned to a few of my colleagues that we would have this conversation and we would record it and they were excited. They're like, well, I want to hear what the two of you have to say about teaching, you know, especially for those of us, for those of us who have not taught yet. Um, and also they're curious to hear about those at the end of their teaching careers, <laughs> whether, it's, whether it's prematurely or, you know, it's planned retirement. Um, so they want to know in your experience, your reflections on what has worked and what has not for those beginning to teach and those at the end of their teaching careers. Yes, I'm, I'm tempted to say that the advice I'd give is be wary of advice um, <laughs> be, because uh, no one can, can teach you how you need to teach. It's like no one can run for you or no one can sing for you. You have to do it which doesn't mean you shouldn't seek advice. I think you should. And, and it's best, I think, to ask for teaching advice um, as concretely as possible, because teaching is always about the concrete. So if you, if you say, I'm, look, I'm teaching this text and, and the class is stuck here, or I'm stuck here, what do you suggest? Or if you say, I keep doing this type of writing assignment and 
And I always get this sort of misunderstanding. See right here on this page, this is happening again and again. And I think that's the way to ask for teaching advice. Because as you say, the, the, if, if you're looking for more general guidance, what you do is ask, well, there's two things. One is you consult your memory yes. and you, you ask yourself, okay, which teachers really do I wanna claim in my genealogy? of teaching. And then you remember what it was about them that moved you. Um, and the other thing, if you want to expand your genealogy, is to ask one of your colleagues for the gracious permission to sit at the back of the class uh, for one session or for many sessions. And um, I wish we did that more. And I wish that it weren't only, uh, I wish it weren't such an anxious event for young teachers, right? Uh, I used to ask to sit in in the back of, of uh, classes, but then I realized that it always seemed like a teaching observation, you know, that I would be taking down notes and handing in a grade or something. Whereas, in fact, I just wanted, I just wanted to watch them teach. I think it's like musicians listening to each other play. What we do is beautiful, and it should be pleasurable most of the time to us. So it's beautiful and pleasurable to watch someone else do it well. Um, as for the end, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't have, for myself, I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, I had, I, I uh, began the process of retirement for various reasons, some family reasons, but also because I thought that it's incumbent upon people to open space for junior scholars, um, and I wanted to do that, uh, and then I. And then I found myself asking, um, where can I teach next? Uh, because it, I'm not finished. I don't feel finished with it. And I don't know the answer to that question. But what I, what I am aware of is that old teachers, people who've been teaching a long time, like people who've been writing a long time, can do things um, that, that are at once eccentric and interesting. It's, it's what Adorno calls late style when he's talking about Beethoven uh, and, and Edward Said has picked up that notion as well. You get to a certain point in your writing or in your teaching where you're willing to take certain risks and some of them may be great failures, um, but some of them will be very interesting and may, may portend a future for teaching that you yourself are not gonna be around to see. Let me say that again in English. What I, at this point in my career, what I'm most interested in is handing over whatever I've got left to people who can carry it forward in ways that I cannot foresee. Oh, beautiful. You know, it reminds me of something Tupac said, the, the, <laughs> the late rapper right, from the West Coast. Uh, many years he said, I might not be the one to change the world or, you know, lead a movement, but I might be, I, I hope to be the one who sparks the mind, right? Or the minds who do it, you know? And I feel like that's the way I approach teaching as well. It's it's planting whatever seeds, or not even just opening conversation, opening possibilities. And, you know, if some are foreclosed, that's okay. You know, if some open to other doors that I did not foresee, even better, right? But I think that I, I, you know, that's obviously not taught. 
some would say that's something that comes about from an intuitive process. You know, um, I don't know what you think about that. Do you think it's something that, uh, given our life, you know, life experiences, lived experiences, that we understand that it's not something that we contain, but it's something that we transmit and hope that it opens to other possibilities, rather think, than the opposite of, of you know putting together a system and saying this step one two three stage one two four you know follow these stages and you're golden right, which to me is very disingenuous and. Um, as you're saying, any type of universals can lead to fascisms. So I would underscore everything you've said and just add that I think it also should be part of our theological or indeed our basic Christian experience, which is that um, we are not in control of the good news. And especially when we're translating it or sending it forward into the future, we do not control and may not recognize its translations right yes absolutely so now we're at that point of the conversation <laughs> where we might need to rest and we're a little weary right so so back to some simple questions that might be fun for the audience back to desire <laughs> what led you to theology Oh, <laughs> I, I think the, um, I think I wanted to meet God. I wanted to encounter God. And, and that, that was, I was very pious at that point, And that was uh, filled with misunderstandings. Some of them ridiculous, some of them not so ridiculous, but, but it was that desire to yeah, to go to walk the road to Jerusalem, to approach the burning bush. And, um, and it's still what keeps me going. Um, yeah, it was just that. Yeah, I, similar trajectories in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Can you reflect on what many perceive to be a shift in your scholarship from an imminent domestic, Thomistic scholar, sorry, to a scholar of sexual ethics, gender, queer theology, who still writes, of course, on Thomas. You know, I I keep I keep thinking about this because uh, yeah, because I don't see it in some way. And but let me explain that more simply. I am aware of a of a shift in style in my writing. And I hope an improvement in my writing. Um, I, at, I've always been uh, uncomfortable, constrained by academic um, genres, especially the journal article, which I generally regard as an abomination. And uh, so I've always been eager to stretch the rules around journal articles. Um, and, and more recently, say starting 15 years ago or so, I just decided, no, I can't do this anymore. Um, so generally I don't submit to journals. I, I, I mean, I'll be invited to contribute something. Um, and even then the editor will say, but, but don't you want more footnotes? To which I'll reply, no. Um, and right, so, so I am aware of that shift, but in terms of the topics or questions, I'm much more, it's like I started out with a set of questions when I was 16 or 17 and I've, I've been mainly following them. 
what also is true and not, not visible from the published record is that I've been reading certain people for um, a long time. So even when I was writing all of my um, domestic work, right, I was, so I was reading Thomas, but I, I was, I was also reading Plato, and it was always a toss-up for me whether I was going to do a dissertation on Thomas or Plato. Um, I was reading uh, Nietzsche and Borges and Virginia Woolf, um, and from way back, that is from um, oof, 68 or 69, I was reading Foucault. So a lot of times what people think of as a shift is actually my just saying, okay, I'm stepping over to this other parallel line, which has always been there. Um, and so people say, well, how can you write back to back a, a book on Foucault and a book on Aquinas? And my answer is, well, but I read them on the same day. Like, you know, I mean, they're always both there for me. So um, yeah, I guess my one regret is, and I'm not sure whether I have that, this may be just a limit of capacity, but I've always admired writers uh, like, uh, to name two very different ones, Octavia Butler and Pierre Klosowski, who write um, deep theology in the form of fiction, that the, the type of fiction they write is very different. Uh, this is, I think, something Marcella Althaus-Reed was pushing at very strongly in her own books. Um, and I regret that I have never yet um, taken the step of just abandoning, as it were, the nonfiction form in order to write that. Um, but again, that wouldn't be a shift. It would be um, picking up of another possibility that I've always been aware of. Yeah. And I go through the same struggle, you know, though obviously my writing career is in many ways beginning and, um, you know, um, something I struggle with. So I, I am working on a novel currently, um, and it's called A Perfect Mold. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't divulge the, the details. But it, 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 I don't see it as a shift either. I see it as a continuation of my theological writing, my more academic writing, which I also try to break in many forms, you know. Um, and of course, that's very ambitious of me as, as a young, you know, uh, scholar, uh, you know, who has not landed yet at a university position. Um, and I understand those risks, but I feel like that's a way that I can be authentic to myself and my communities, right, is, is by exploring creatively all these aspects. And, um, you know, I count as friends, artists, writers, uh, creative writers, and they provide sustenance for my project. They, they reassure me that this is not a crazy endeavor, right? That um, we can all write wonderful fictions. I mean, we do write fictions every day, whether we know or not. So it's, um, I think it's a beautiful endeavor to, to think about not our shifts, but our continuities and disjunctures within right, a set parameter. Um, hmm. I know there's a lot of anxiety around fascism, you know, so you turn on the news and you hear that the 2024 election will be rigged and, you know, that fascism has been on our doorsteps at least for the last 25 years, if not more. Of course, McCarthyism in the 50s and, you know, it's, it's we, the list goes on and on. Fascism has always been a counterpart of, I think, democracy, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, you, in, in this essay that you wrote for the uh, 
REA, you write that, quote, theology speaks best when it recalls limitations. And we've discussed this already. When it recalls limitations, fractures certainties, open doors to excluded experiences, or gestures toward other, that, toward other possibilities that englobe every human language. Can you expand on this? Perhaps in light of what Michel Foucault writes in, um, in Giles Deleuze's Anti-Oedipus, quote, this warning that he gives us, he says, quote, the fascism that is in all of us, <laughs> in our heads and in our everyday behavior, the fascism that causes us to love power, to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. Yes, just to pick up on that end, because I think that links back to earlier talk about um, the balance of desire and frustration in teaching. Um, there, in each of us, there is the, the little fascist. That is, there is the part that desires not only to have power, but to have certainty. Yes. And that insists on certainty and having an orderly society with people wearing uniforms and so on and so on, right? So yes, that's there, it's in all of us. And I, I think, I've been thinking about this a lot because so much of the 20th century has seen the use of Christianity by fascist regimes, um, not saliently in Latin America, but not only in Latin America. Um, so uh, we, so I think pe people in the U.S. frequently go to, to Nazi Germany as the sort of classic example, but. But no, I mean, for me, um, a much more chilling example is, is Franco's Spain or Argentina under the generals or Brazil under the generals or Chile under the generals. Because in those cases, what you see is the collaboration of a number of churches with the state and the state's control of theology in such a way that theology uh, not only authorizes but cheers on the worst excesses of the state. Uh, as we've talked before in other conversations, there are neo-Thomistic justifications of torture produced in Argentina under the generals. So I, I think that the possibility of fascism um, in, in the United States, which is largely connected with Christian nationalism, um, is poses special problems for um, theology, because it's it's not just that that teachers of theology would suffer the same risks um, as any citizen would, or that people, for example, who are undocumented uh, would suffer ferocious persecutions. Um, it's that the very language of Christianity would be almost wholly co-opted for the purposes of fascism itself. What language do we use? What language can we make when our traditional language has been co-opted by fascism? That seems to me the thing that theologians should be especially worried about because we have so many historical examples in the immediate past. Absolutely. And that's, again, it's, it's a warning that I give my students when I say, you know, uh, just be weary and wary of prophetic pronouncements. Right, because they can easily be taken and uh, you know deployed in nefarious ways. Um, so it's it's it, it, I think it goes back to the pedagogical strategy of opening conversation, opening multiple ways, fragmenting pathways, um, rather than pronouncing in ways that sound like code or again like a prophetic statement of fact. Right, um, even if it's well intentioned. 
Um, so it's something that I'm very aware of and, and, and try through my scholarship and teaching to uh, you know, just raise for others. Um, so what of human agency in the search for other futures? And, and I think a more important question, do you think hope, hope is a useful category term in the ongoing resistance to languages that form and encase selves as if some as as if in some exhibit at a museum you know uh do you think hope is a useful category i think like <clears throat> like most words like most important words it has good uses and dangerous uses uh so I would, I would almost want to use the old device of saying hope and then drawing an X through it uh, to, to show that it's not the hope the way it's ordinarily meant. Um, because our hope is not in human agency. Yes. Um, that seems to me um, given in some sense in Christian theology. We cannot promise to bring about perfection by our own um, political activity, no matter how well organized and, and how strident and how severe. We have to assume that every human effort to produce perfection will produce monsters. And what that means is that we have to keep trying despite the fact that we know that we can't do it. That what we're doing is opening space in which a divine agency can enter in. Uh, is our human work uh, rendered empty? No, no, it's important. It's, I think, essential to open those spaces. But it's not, again, what we can conclude. We, we cannot bring about the reign of justice on earth. We cannot bring about an end to violence. We can't bring about an end to sexual violence or racism. These are all beyond our doing. So we have to find a way of talking about hope that allows us to keep working daily without an assurance of success through our own power. Absolutely, and, and what comes to mind, two things come to mind. So Foucault, of course, when he says, uh, you know, history is a domination of dominations, right? Mm. And I think that that's absolutely correct. And it's not to be pessimistic here or, you know, it's, or nihilistic even, it's to be realistic, I think. Um, and, and then, Ecclesiastes, you know, I keep coming back to Ecclesiastes, you know, um, I think, I believe it's in the last chapter, right, where uh, Coleth or whatever the author's name is says, you know, uh, well, it's all hopeless, so just drink and be merry and try to be happy, as happy as you can within our delusions. Um, so I think that there's something to be said about that and exploring that a little bit further. Um, but our time, unfortunately, is yeah. coming to an end, right? So our journey is closing here. Um, we're about to hit that fork in the road. Uh, so I want to thank you for this rich conversation and for taking the time to share your thoughts with me and with our audience. Um, I think they should know we, we, we talk regularly and uh, we do this regularly where we have conversations. We just don't record them. So uh, we hope the audience finds this fruitful and, and can open conversations. But one final question before we each take this metaphorical fork in the road. What are the contours, do you think, diasporic, a transgressive, in essence of theology that endlessly grapples with nihilism and hopelessness spawned by mass senseless deaths, so necropolitics, and widespread injustice, or what we conceive of as injustice within the parameters of our seemingly inevitable current colonial arrangements? 
or again, to state in English, as you say, <laughs> how can surviving with several passports translate into actually learning to thrive within fundamentally unjust boundaries that seem fated to repetition in different forms throughout policed time? And here, let me just speak briefly and using Marcella's um, example. Um, so some nights I console myself by thinking there's got to be a way for me to get an EU passport, right? <laughs> so that when things get really bad, uh, I can I can get out of the country, um, not just by myself, but with people I love. Uh, and and in that sense, and not just as a as a, someone who's on the left, uh, but as a gay man, I'm haunted by the history of Weimar Germany. I'm haunted by the collapse of German liberalism and the rise of Nazism. And I remember um, how many people got out and how many people didn't and what happened to the people who were left behind. But I think, I think Marcella is onto something else, um, which is there, there are no more Switzerland's. There, there's, there's no place to go. Um, all the passports end up being the same place. You may use them strategically to move around a little bit, but it's very important to occupy more than one national and cultural space, but there's no more escape. That's an illusion. So we're here. So the reason for our hope is we're here. We have to make this work. This is where we are. And in solidarity, right, with, with uh with others, you know, um, Hotel California comes to mind, right? <laughs> we can check out, but we can never leave, you know, and I think that that's uh, an apt conclusion here. So if it's true as Foucault contends that we are condemned to a quest for meaning whose meaning is that our human nature is continually being reconstituted by the forms that we create along the way, I am beyond honored and glad to be on this perpetual quest with you and other teachers and friends, Mark. For teachers, as you noted in your Harvard Divinity School convocation address, are both visible and invisible, flesh and dirt, word and fractured memories. So with that, I wanna thank you, um, not only for this recording, but again, for the years of friendship and for your mentoring and for your love and care. You know, I really appreciate you. So to end, a poem by Nicaraguan poet, Claribel Alegria, titled Salí de Mi, and I'll read it in Spanish. Gotta practice my Spanish, you know. Uh, Salí de mí, dejando atrás el hoy y mañana. A mi regreso, eran huecas las, las voces y nada comprendía. Se me extravió el hilo del coloquio y yo no lo, encont y, y no lo encontró aún. And I think that that speaks to the selves, right? Being outside the self, but also coming back to whatever imagined self and just continuously reconstituting ourselves along the way in this repetitious, in some ways, journey, right? That we can never escape. Thank so you for that. Thank you for the poem. Thank you for arranging this. And I add only um, that other uh, great teacher along our, our journey, Chavela Vargas, right? <laughs> uh, because uh, En el Ultimo Trago is a wonderful song of taking leave. En el Ultimo Trago nos vamos, so. Ultimo trago los vamos, and I will cheer. I will cheers tonight to that and to you and to um, 
you know, um, the folks who have also made this possible, uh, Macarena and everybody at HTI um, and Open Plaza, you know. So with that, thank you so much, Mark. Um, thank you to our audience. And uh, we look forward to any feedback and to hearing about any conversations that might or might not open up from this. Good, good. Take care. All take care. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.